Welcome to Core Voices, your space to share your stories, bring forward your voice, support each other, and create conscious community. The last few weeks, as you know, we've been kicking off the movement of Me Too Sick. We need your support. Reach out to us, get involved, help us to take this work further, bring accountability, safeguarding, and help us to make Gurdwara safe again. This is what we want to do. We want to make sure that we all feel protected in our communities, in our homes, and in our spiritual spaces. It's something that we all need. We can only do it together. This is your community, your movement, and your voice is needed. It matters, and we want to hear your story. So reach out to us at hello at corevoices.org. Go visit the website www.corevoices.org or go and follow us on Instagram and Facebook and hit that like button. Be here, be involved in this space and help us to make a difference together. Today, I'm really excited to have a wonderful guest on the show, somebody who is doing incredible work in the community, a sister, an advocate, and an incredible human being. Jessie Brar is a mental health advocate and expert by experience. After struggling with her own mental health for several years, she went on to pursue her studies in psychology and began volunteering alongside many different mental health charities. She went on to share her story around the world through her writing and public speaking. She's the founder of the Mental Health Spotlight, a platform which is dedicated to raising awareness about mental health in the South Asian community. Jessie has bravely shared her story and her knowledge with thousands of people across the globe, including notable health ministers and the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge. And she is also on the list of 100 most influential Sikhs under 30. It is an absolute pleasure and delight to have Jessie with us in the Core Voices community and on today's show. Hi. Welcome, Jessie. Hi. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for joining us in our beautiful little community. I'm so excited for our conversation today and for you to share more with us about your journey. Thank you. No, I'm super excited to be here. I've been following the journey online for a really long time, so I'm excited to take a little part in it too. <laughs> Thank you. My first question for you is mental health being one of those things that is often labeled as taboo or we shy away from it in our community. I've had a lot of other people on the show who have spoken to it as well. What was your experience growing up with your own mental health in the South Asian community? Did you receive the support that you needed? Were you able to bring forward your concerns and ask for help? Um, I think for me, like it started when I was super young. So my, I guess, family history a little bit um, my father is actually an alcoholic and his parents were both super abusive. So when my mom married into the family, she married and came to Canada um, in the 90s. She had no family here, no friends here. Everyone else she knew lived in the States. So she had to start over and she had nothing, of, no support system outside of my father. And he unfortunately was struggling a lot with his addiction to alcohol and his parents were also being verbally and physically abusive. So growing up, when I was born, I'm the oldest of three, I witnessed a lot of that firsthand. 
And when my mom wasn't there, I would kind of take the brunt of it. And so I'm super thankful that my mom is an incredibly strong woman and she left um, when I was 11. So she'd already been married and been there for almost 13, 14 years, but she found the strength to leave for her children. And what I found was after I'd been removed from that environment, even though all of the bad things that were happening went away, I still was struggling a lot. I still didn't relate to the kids around me. I didn't feel normal. There was so much going on. And it wasn't until I was around 16 and I took my first psychology class and they were listing off the symptoms of depression and anxiety and I'm writing them down. And I'm like, oh, this like, like this sounds like me. I thought this was normal. And they're telling me that it's an illness. And I remember I went home that day and I talked to my mom and I was like, mom, like, I think I'm depressed. And she, again, my mother is the most genuinely loving and supportive human ever but she looked at me and she's like you've got straight a's you've got a great group of friends you live in a safe space your family loves you like you have everything why like why are you depressed and it was genuine curiosity because she had never learned about it either no one had ever told her that you could struggle it was just kind of a fact of life for her that that's just how it is like you just kind of go through life and you just deal with whatever comes your way and at 16, I, I thought about it and I, I couldn't think of a better reason. So I was like, okay, maybe I'm just having a bad day or a bad week and I let it go. And eventually when I went to university in my first year, I was really struggling to the point where I was having suicidal ideations and I was like questioning if I wanted to exist anymore and all of these things. And it honestly, the difference came when I went to a presentation by accident one day and it was two South Asian males. Uh, they went up there and they talked about how they had struggled, how they had really tough first years, how they missed their family and not having their support system and how that brought them down a lot. And then they talked about how they got help. So they talked about going to see a counselor and seeking services. And I remember sitting in their room thinking, these people look like me, like they've been through the same experiences. They have that same kind of background if they can get help and if they can get better maybe i can too and seeing someone who looks like you that's really the power of diversity is if you don't see yourself reflected in the stories you hear you don't think that that's an option for you so for mental health i didn't see anyone who was of color even talking about it like let let alone punjabi like i didn't see anyone who was Hindu, Punjabi, Black, Muslim, whatever, like there was no one that was talking about it. It was just kind of those little fad things that a few people, a few like white influencers were talking about. And that's when I realized how important having those conversations were. And I think that's really what led me into the space and to do what I'm doing now. That's incredible and very brave of you to be sharing. So thank you for doing that work. Um, what you were speaking um, really hits home for me as well. I had a similar childhood, similar environment, and I'm really glad that you received the support that you did. I wasn't in a position to kind of figure that stuff out. It just, it was just the norm. Mm -hmm. It just felt like this is how it's supposed to be. This is the typical Punjabi family. And because so many of us have the same situation, we feel like it's right, mm -hmm. even though we know it's wrong. For sure. I think 
that's just how the brain is made is you learn from experience. So whatever you see around you, if everyone's doing the same thing, if everyone's following the same path, the same things are happening, that becomes your normal. Normal is very subjective of it really depends on what you've been through. And so even for me, like it took me, I would say, I had the first realization that maybe something was wrong. When I was 16, I maybe started getting help when I was 22 and I'm 26 now. And there's still things where I think about them and I look, I'm like, oh my God, that's so not okay that I let that happen. And as you get older, you start to connect the dots of, okay, cool. How does like what I'm doing now and like my romantic life, how does that relate back to how I was raised and all these patterns of behavior? And you see that it's not like a one kind of instant. It's really shaped throughout your experiences, your parents' experiences. It all kind of trickles down to make you who you are. And it really comes to, are you going to continue that cycle or are you going to break it and see what happens next? It's You're right. You're 100% correct that all of our behaviors are actually learnt in our younger years. Um, some of them conscious and others of them unconscious. Mm -hmm. And it's not until or if we ever get to that point of breaking it down that we recognize it. Um, I'm glad that you're doing that work in your 20s. I um, began it in my 20s, but really started to get into the juicier stuff in my 30s, which is way more difficult. <laughs> but nonetheless, I don't think that there's an age parameter on when you should seek support. And um, I'm really grateful that you're doing this work that you're doing. What was it that um, became the catalyst for you to create the mental health spotlight? It really was that idea of like, for me, what it took was seeing someone who kind of looked like me, who I could relate to, seeing that person go through so much and come out the other end and be okay. And I was like, okay, if they can do it and they've been through similar things, that means I can too. And it was seeing myself represented in those spaces. And once I saw that the first time I went and I booked my first therapy appointment and I went to go see a therapist on campus. So I was in university in my second year at that time. And I went to a very white university. There weren't a lot of students of color, um, let alone students that were Indian. And then like you break it down in Punjabi, like there was really no one who looked like me on campus. And when I was talking to the therapist, they just didn't understand. I remember, I think I was like testing them and I, said that I was having issues with like the guy I was dating at that time. And I was like, I don't know what to do. And they kept on being like, just talk to your mom about it. I was like, my mom doesn't know he exists. So like, I don't, <laughs> there was just so many cultural nuances that like, they just didn't understand. Mm -hmm. And, or it would be like, I like, I'm the oldest of three and I'm a second mom to my brother and my sister. Like, that's just how it's always been. And my therapist kept on being like, oh, that's so wrong of your mom to make you do that and for you to take on their role. I'm like, no, it's not. Like, she never asked me to do it, but it's, I had to do it or else the four of us weren't going to make it through life. Mm -hmm. And those were just things that they just didn't understand. And so for me, I realized that, like, it's so important to have people who look like you, who understand you, who understand your culture to say that they understand. And I searched for it. I looked everywhere and I couldn't find a space where South Asians were having conversations about mental health. And I started volunteering with other organizations. I was volunteering with um, a couple of youth mental health organizations. 
I went to a couple of their conferences and at their conferences, they kept on saying, make a difference in your community, whatever that may be. And like, I'm sure they meant it like go back to your hometown or your high school or whatever it was. But for me, my community is young South Asians who grew up not being brown enough for like white people or being sorry, too brown for white people, not white enough for the others and really just not fitting in. And I was like, you know what? Um, something my mom's always instilled in me is that if you don't try and do something about it, you don't have a right to complain. And so I was like, okay, I'm frustrated that this community doesn't exist, but if I don't at least try and make it, then I can't really say anything about it. It's just going to be the way it is. And so I started off by sharing my story and I invited a couple others um, that I had come across that were doing kind of similar things, more like clinicians um, invited them to share their story and then slowly stories just started coming in we had stories from around the world um, like suddenly I'm getting requests from Australia and the UK and all of these different places and I just kind of had that platform that platform really wasn't um, it wasn't me it was a collective of hundreds of thousands of people around the world who were opening up, up about their experiences and it was kind of that idea that for me, that's what it took. And my story is not going to resonate with everyone. So maybe another story, a person would see that and say, you know what, that person did it. So I can too. So at the end of the day, for me, it was if one person saw a story and got help after, or if it was a hundred people, that was still a difference in someone's life. And that's all that really mattered. And that is so important. Even if it is just one person, that's a massive thing even if it's just sharing a smile and, you know, not being able to do more than that, but that makes a big difference. It's those small acts of kindness that I think help us to get to making the world a better place. For sure. Yeah. I think a lot of people forget that we hold so much power. And at the end of the day, everyone just wants to feel included and that they're important and everyone is. It's just sometimes along the way you forget that. And when you're struggling with mental health issues or mental illness, it becomes even harder to remember that you are a strong, important human. Mm -hmm. So it's opening up those conversations. And I kind of did that for about three years. And now I'm kind of moving into doing more policy oriented and creating change at like larger tables of not just talking about it, but actually creating change and pushing others and being a little more aggressive about it of like, Hey, listen, like we've started talking about this, but now you actually have to do something about it. Um, mm -hmm. So that's kind of what I've moved into now. That is amazing. That is amazing. And you're right. We need to be at different tables to bring impact. So that's incredible. I'm very proud of you. <laughs> I wanted you to share with us and with our audience um, what intergenerational trauma is, because um, in spaces that we navigate, we have more familiarity with these terms, but I don't think that the wider community is aware of what it is and how deeply it can impact us. So if you could share with us what intergenerational trauma is. For sure. So um, like I talked about a bit before, a lot of the things we experience don't come from just one instance. It's a series of things that have led up to it. So for a lot of us, it's whatever's happened for the first, like for me, 26 years of my life, but how my mom lived life, how her parents lived life, that also impacts who I am today. 
And I think one of the easiest examples for me um, and something that I've been thinking about a lot is as Sikhs as Punjabi people, we've experienced a lot of trauma throughout the generation. So for me and my family, my grandfather um, and my grandmother, my nana, my nani, they were both born in the 30s. So they lived through partition. They were ripped away from their friends, their family. They had to move halfway across what was the country back then and start a new life. And they lost friends along the way. They fled the country at one point to Africa to start try and start something new. And in my mom's generation, so she was born in the late 60s and she remembers when 1984 started and all of that was happening. She remembers she was at school and they sent her all on a bus and they all had to go back to their friend and hide. And she remembers that my nana was taken away for a few days and they had no idea what was happening. They had no idea if he was dead or alive. And she remembers that from that day, every single time someone left the house, she was anxious. She just felt like her heart dropped a little. And that affects me today of I could be, it could be like five o'clock and I want to get a snack and I'll leave the house, but my mom's always anxious. And at first when I was younger, it used to irritate me because I was like, mom, come on, you're being irrational. But then I grew up and I started to understand her experiences and what shaped her to be who she is and how that affects my life. And that's really what intergenerational trauma is, is trauma that's passed down through generations when it becomes unresolved. So for a lot of us, I think we need to cut our parents a little bit of slack because they have been through a lot. Their generation, the generation before, they've been through a lot of trauma and they didn't have the luxury of actually sitting down and dealing with it. So when our for example, like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which is like fancy psychology terms, but it's basically this idea that before you start dealing with issues of like love and acceptance and all of this, stuff, first you have to deal with the basics of being alive, of food, water, shelter. So when my parents immigrated to Canada, they had to figure out how am I going to find food? How am I going to find shelter? How, what, how am I going to feed my kids? All of that type of stuff. So my mom didn't have the luxury of being like, okay, I have anxiety, what do I do about it? But I'm blessed to have been born into a family where my mom had already figured out the basics for me. So I was able to study and learn and figure out more about the space and what anxiety is and the things I was feeling and deal with them now. And so intergenerational trauma really is just this idea that a lot of our issues can be passed down from generation to generation if we don't take some time to take a pause and reevaluate what's going on. I think what you said there was really important, cutting our parents some slack. And you're you're 100% right. It's something that I, I also feel the same way about, um, is that our parents have been through a lot. Mm-hmm. And if we don't look at things from their lens, we don't offer them the same understanding that we want them to give to us. We won't find any way of resolution. There is no way to change. It requires work from both sides, right? And I think a lot at the end of the day, I know I'm guilty of this too, but sometimes I forget that my mom's a human, which I know sounds so weird, but we see our parents as these like untouchable things that like our parents always have the answers that they're like they're on this pedestal of like they're just our parents but at the end of the day they really are just humans no one gave them a book on 
how to live life or how to parent or how to do anything. They had to figure it out along the way as well. So yes, they still make mistakes. Like, for example, I said that my father was an alcoholic. And for me, it was really hard because his addiction caused me a lot of pain and suffering as I was growing up. But I had to see that at some point, I just had to kind of let it go of this was something he was struggling with. It doesn't, it's not my fault. It's not something I did. And unfortunately, I got some, I guess, baggage out of it. But he was just a human. And that's how he chose to deal with it, not necessarily the way I would have chose or I would agree with, but that's what happened. And that's a decision he made. And you just have to kind of live with it. And you have to create that understanding that we're all just human and some people make mistakes and we kind of have that power to separate ourselves from that. But how do you do that when you're in the situation? Because um, I know that when I was younger, I wasn't able to do that that clearly. Mm -hmm. um, when there's something not working around you in your family, the dysfunction that we observe and that we experience, as kids, we take it on ourselves. You know, that maybe there's something wrong with me. Maybe they don't like me. That Yes, that's that insecurity. But because there's something missing in that relationship, it's what it what it creates and aggravates is the insecurity. So how do you, um, how would you help somebody to navigate from that insecurity to connect with their self-worth? Because it's only once you feel that you're worthy of receiving something better that you're going to go out and seek help. Yeah, I think the unfortunate thing is, is sometimes you need those things in place outside of the home. And if I, I was really lucky that I had my mom who is willing to listen and to understand, but not every single household has that. And so it's trying to find other places. So ideally, we have schools where you can talk to counselors and you can learn more. Or now that we live in the day and age of the internet, we have helplines you can call, all of these different things. And it really is, it's super difficult. I can't, like, I won't say it's easy. It's taken me so long and I still have so many days where I'm like low and I feel like, did I even make any progress? And what progress looks like is super messy. And I think it's cutting yourself that slack that, it's okay if sometimes you take 10 steps forward and two steps back, but any progress is still progress and reaching out for support. And I think one of the things that I found hard to realize is in our Punjabi community, a lot of the time we, we put a lot of pressure on family. And that's something that's both amazing because we have this built up support system inherently in our lives, but also when sometimes those family members are the issue and they are being toxic, we also have to realize that we have the power and it is okay to take a step back and to cut people off that don't serve you. And it's hard because it feels very selfish, but I don't know where this connotation comes from, but being selfish isn't a negative thing. That's something that was instilled in us to protect us and to make our lives the best they could be. The only person at the end of the day who's gonna be able to take care of you is you. So you do have to put yourself first. And for me, I even had to reframe it of, it made me almost sick to my stomach to think of the idea that I was being selfish, but I was like, okay, if I don't take care of myself, I won't be able to take care of my family. I won't be able to 
take care of the people I love around me. So I need to take care of myself in order to help the people around me. And it really is what works for you. I think the thing about reaching out for support that a lot of people don't realize is it really is trial and error and it sucks because what works for me may not work for you, but we all deserve support in whatever way we need it. It's the thing that's hard though, isn't it? Because we're, we're built with this hard exterior of um, when we're younger, it's one of the first things that you know we're trained with. Whatever's going on in the home stays in the home. You don't talk about it to others. So we're taught how to master wearing the mask. Yeah. So to actually admit that something is wrong means that we have to be able to take the mask off. And that's often one of the most difficult things for us to do as Punjabis, as South Asians, as humans, um, is getting to that point of showing who you are underneath the mask, showing and exposing your vulnerabilities, which takes a lot of courage and strength. Um, and I'm just thinking about a lot of the people who might be tuning into the show, who might be sitting in that space, trying to figure out what is the first step? How do they get close to even braving it to take off the mask and finding a space um something that you touched on earlier which i can relate to when i was in high school with some of the things that were going on at home um my dad was um physically very violent as well um when he would drink a lot so sometimes the teachers would ask questions about marks or bruises and things and they just didn't quite believe that i was walking into that many doors or falling downstairs and things so they um assigned me to to have to work with the school counselor and i had the same obstacles there were just so many things that culturally they didn't get mm-hmm. and um the lady that i was assigned to after just one meeting the poor thing seemed more traumatized than i was just from hearing you know one day in the life of me at home you know um so it just it was very discouraging for me that she's not equipped to deal with my problems and to be honest I closed the doors to therapy kind of back then because I didn't feel that they could help me and getting by I was I was doing it I didn't have a problem with it it was my teachers that had a problem with it and that was why I was in that room but is that something um I'm sure that's something that people out there are are experiencing what would you give as advice to somebody who feels that way or might be in that situation. Yeah, I think it's super common. I remember for me as well, like the first time I went to therapy, I was like, I felt like I knew more than my therapist. I was like, I'm studying this, like all of this Mm -hmm. stuff, things I read in my textbook, like, why are you telling me this? And I realized that, you know what, therapy just wasn't for me at that moment in time. I've gone back and it's been helpful later on in life when I was more willing to have conversations but there are different avenues. And I think one of the things I'm really pushing for is the reason diversity is so important in these spaces is because you need people who understand to actually understand to. So you, like if you you and I were to share stories and you say, yeah, I understand what it's like for a parent to be abusive, that because you've had that experience or you have that kind of cultural connotation, it makes a difference and it makes the person you're talking to that much more willing. And to someone who has tried to get help and it hasn't worked out, 
the first time or the second time. It's so hard not to do, but it really is just don't get discouraged. Look for different avenues. And because it's such a complex thing is, for example, if you have diabetes, you can take your insulin shots and that's it. Like you just keep up with your insulin shots and you're good. But with mental illness and mental health issues, you have to really figure out the root of the cause. How is this something that's up with your brain chemistry and you need medicine for? Is this something you need to talk through? Do you need various therapies? Maybe you need to take a step back and like be by yourself for a little bit, whatever that may be. And it really is just trial and error. I wish there was a kind of one size fits all answer. But I think the other thing to do is look for people that you can talk to that have been through similar experiences. I think the one advantage we have right now is you really can find help from the comfort of your own home. You can see other people talking about their stories and it gives you that glimmer of hope of, okay, they got through it. So this is some of the resources they use. Let me try that. It makes it that much easier to be like, okay, you know what, where can I go next? And so I would say, look for communities that are accepting of what you've been through, what you're going through and feel free to ask questions and ask for help. I know a hundred percent, anyone who has been through a mental health struggle is always more than willing to answer questions and help out if someone's going through that. And if it's on the internet, they probably wanted it to be there. No one, it doesn't usually magically happen. So our stories are out there, reach out to those people. I'm always more than willing to reach out and have conversations. I have people who DM me um, from India, from Australia, from the States, wherever. Sometimes all they need is just to have a conversation and I try and connect them to resources in their area and kind of go from there. That's amazing. And people can connect with you on Instagram using your name, Jesse Brar. So if you want to reach out to Jesse, that's the best way to do it. Um, some of your expertise at the moment, you said you're focusing um, on complex PTSD, which is post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, again, for our viewers and for our audience, I would love if you could explain what post-traumatic stress step was. PTSD is <laughs> and what's the difference between complex PTSD for sure so I think a lot of people have heard of PTSD a lot of times if you have watched any shows about war or um, instances like that um, PTSD is also common amongst um, victims of sexual abuse so really what it stands for is post-traumatic stress disorder and that just means when you experience a traumatic event it is effects of the event happening later on in life as well. And I guess the difference between PTSD and CPTSD, which is complex post-traumatic stress disorder, is PTSD is typically um, from one event, whereas CPTSD actually comes from a prolonged period of time of traumatic events. So it could be, for example, multiple instances of sexual abuse. It could be experiencing or witnessing domestic violence over a long period of time any sort of childhood traumas that you may have experienced over a long period of time, witnessing um, different struggles, if you, living in a time of war or a time of conflict, all of these things can cause PTSD. And I think it is one of the newer kind of diagnoses that are out there. And the reason I've been focusing a lot on this is growing up, I was always told 
that I had depression, that I had generalized anxiety disorder, and that I had PTSD. So I was diagnosed with all three growing up. And even though I was diagnosed with all three, none of them quite made sense because I experienced some of the symptoms, but not all of them. And the treatments I was supposed to be doing with all of them didn't make any sense for me. I would try, it would work for maybe a couple of weeks or a couple of months, and then I'd go back downhill until I came across this diagnosis of CPTSD. And it became all encompassing. It explained how, because I had had such a traumatic childhood and I lived in prolonged trauma for about 11 years of my life, I experienced symptoms of kind of depression, anxiety, PTSD all put together. But it really is complex post traumatic stress disorder, which is treated differently than any of those other diagnoses. So it's still super new. It's a space that I think a lot of people are researching more and learning more about now and if you talk to your doctor doctor about it it might um, obviously they'll be, give a better description but that's a little bit about um that kind of space so um how is our community affected by both of these if we look at intergenerational trauma and we're looking at ptsd um with some of the things that we've been through communally, even if you're talking about 84 or partition, you know, these are things that, you know, if I'm watching on, on the TV, if I'm watching, you know, one of the films, Bhagat Singh or Sebzadi or something like this, it really hits home. It hits deep because we know that that happened to, to our bloodline. We know that that happened to our ancestors. So how does that impact us? I think we always say it, it's our ancestors, but they're living with us still. Like the partition, like my grandparents are still alive. They were born in the thirties and they're in their eighties now, but they partition was, I believe 47. So they've lived through that. 84 wasn't that long ago. My mom lived through that. Like I lived through a traumatic life and they had those prolonged periods of trauma. So I think CPTSD and kind of intergenerational trauma in the Punjabi community go hand in hand because this is something that we've been experiencing for generations. When you, partition was happening, that was a prolonged period of time. It wasn't just one day of, there was this one traumatic event and then it was over. It was years, weeks, months, and even afterwards, even once partition had happened, it was still so much time of learning how to adjust, thinking about all of the traumatic events, there's some things in life that you just can't unsee. Same with 84. A lot of people lost family members or friends or people they knew that they were associated with. And you don't just get over that in a day. It was a very prolonged traumatic event. And effects of that are still being seen today. We still see that there is bias towards Sikhs in India and with everything going on. And so all of that kind of goes hand in hand. And I think in the community as well with PTSD is, when I think we talked about this a little bit earlier is we have this urge to say and we just like suppress it and we stop things for example sexual abuse it it happens in every community but we purposely tell everyone that it taints the person who who was abused we always we don't necessarily blame the victim a lot of the time it still does happen but we tell the victim no you can't talk about this because it'll make you look bad and we're being protective, but we're also suppressing their feelings and suppressing the trauma they've been through that they push down and it affects them for years to come. 
Absolutely. I mean, all of these things that we go through emotionally, they they impact us deeply in terms of our mental health. And um, I don't think that there's there is a lot of a lot more work now being done in our community towards this to support it. Organizations like yours and many others out there, there's Sorch Mental Health, there's is it Cam H, there's so many other ones as well which exist in Toronto. There's loads in the UK as well. So I'm glad to know that there's more support. But for those that are part of the community that are still learning about this, how would they recognize the symptoms? I think a lot of it comes down to is your thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. That's how I always break it down is if you've had a change in your thoughts, if you're feeling, so if you're, you've been thinking, you know what, I wish I didn't exist, or I wish things were a certain way, or I, you're having this feeling of stress or feeling like you're not yourself, and then behaving in different ways. If you are doing, so behavior actually goes in kind of two ways. You can either withdraw or you can kind of go in full force. So withdrawing is maybe taking away time that you used to spend with friends, staying home, not talking to anyone, cutting people off, or going full force in of going out, partying a lot, drinking more, indulging in different substances. If you're starting to notice these kind of differences, it might mean that you might be struggling with some of the thoughts that are going on and some of the things that might have happened in your life, or if you witness someone else struggling with that, it's kind of a moment for conversation. And I think one of the things I've realized is I've always been scared to ask people of how they were doing because I felt like I wasn't equipped. I felt like if I asked someone, are you okay? And they said, no, I was like, oh my God, what do I do next? Mm -hmm. And what I learned is I much rather have someone tell me that they're not okay and me be like, you know what? I'm not sure exactly what to do, but here's some like I've done some research or hear some resources or hear other people who might know what to do, then never ask them the question and have something else happen. And I think it's opening up those conversations. And one of the things I think we as a community need to work on is being more open about all of these taboo subjects. I think, like you said, we have started to open up about mental health. And I think it's really funny for me, like I said, I started talking when I was around 22 and I brought those conversations back into my home. And my mom, who was around, she probably doesn't want me to say her age, but she was in the late 40s at the time. And my nanny, who was in her 80s, like they both were like, oh my gosh, I think we both have anxiety. And I was like, of course you guys do. And my nanny started going on anxiety medication when she was 83, I think. And so there really is no age. Like she said, she never really felt this way. It wasn't until she kind of retired and wasn't working anymore. And that's when she felt more anxious. And that's when we like kind of started getting her help. But help can happen at any age. And I think having those conversations really goes a long way. I've worked with a group called Lalia and they do something called BG&E where it was a Mm. uh, bunch of grandmothers and they brought their granddaughters in. But we had a safe conversation where doors were closed it was just women and we talked about different experiences that we had and all of these women were talking about their experiences struggling with mental health when they came from India to come to Canada and they had no friends or they had to start over or they were working these hard labor jobs and working like 13 14 hour shifts and then coming and taking their care of their children and all of this stuff but then 
it started off really hard. It was just me talking and a bit about my experience. And then we had one um, amazing woman and she started speaking up and then someone else started sharing their story. And by the end of it, they were all kind of teary eyed and hugging each other because they realized that they all had been through similar experiences and they weren't actually alone. And I think that's the really big thing about mental health struggles. It makes you feel really, really alone. Mm. The statistics are one in five people struggle with their mental health at any given time. So we all know of someone who has struggled or someone who knows someone who has struggled. It's something that's prevalent in every single person's life. And we all have mental health. If you've got a brain, you have mental health and we all have good days and bad days. So it's okay. I don't understand why there is any taboo about the subject because to me, it just baffles me. It doesn't make sense to me anymore. I agree with you. There's just so many things in our community that have been hidden under that veil of taboo and it stops us doing the work that's needed. But I think that one of the reasons is that cultural evolution from generation to generation. And if we think about our parents, uh, my mom, how she was raised um, was she was very obedient. Mm -hmm. um, and that was how that generation was trained. And even the generation before them, where women didn't so uh, forcefully ask for their rights. They were happy with whatever they were given, uh, whatever their circumstances were. My mom suffered in silence from domestic abuse for all of her married life. Um, she wouldn't leave my dad because that was against her values and against her belief system. And they were so strongly tied to their belief system and to their values. Um, the idea of izzat mm -hmm. was the most expensive. And to lose that meant losing everything, losing your dignity, losing your life, losing, you know, your, your worth. If you didn't have that, you didn't have anything. And, um, I think that now that there's a, a, a fusion between that East-West culture, because, you know, being born and raised in the West, we have access to di two different cultures to compare the differences and then create something out of both of them that works for us. But our parents didn't have that. So they could only work with what they had. Yeah, I agree. And I also think it's just the world has changed, whether you're living in India or you're living here, like, we just have so much more access now and women are equivalent to men. And that's something that was bizarre and unheard of 40, 50, 60 years ago, but that's the world we live in now. And I think everyone just needs to learn that you have to adjust with the time. So, and I think one thing with culture is a lot of people take it for face value and you need to realize that like the Guru Granth Sahib, like whatever you believe in or all of these things were written hundreds of thousands of years ago that world doesn't exist that world had no instagram it had no facebook it had no internet like it didn't have brick houses like that world was different and it's not there anymore so you can't take it at literal value you have to adapt it to the world you live in right i mean talking about gender equality it's one of the things that the gurus advocated for um and to see how far we've come away from that um, these are things that, you know, eat away at me. It's the reason that this space exists, that there are contradictions. There are things that we need to improve as a community. 
in how we show up and how we address matters that are important. Mental health is something that needs to be addressed. We need to look at the causes, the things that exist within our households and in our communities that enable poor mental health because we partake in creating poor environments which will then affect our mental health. We have to look at how to improve those systems. And um, as we were talking before we went on air, I was sharing with you about the Me Too Sick movement. And I'm just, you know, the, the correlation of PTSD and how it exists for victims. Um, and, I, and I say victims consciously, I don't believe that we have enough survivors of sexual abuse in our community because we haven't done the work mm -hmm. to create the infrastructure to support a victim to go on their survivor's journey and heal through their experience and move on with their life. That work hasn't been done. A few of us have kind of like, you know, done the experimentation on ourselves and gotten through it. Um, that's what I had to do. I wasn't given an infrastructure that here you go, you've been wounded, you've been hurt, this is what you need to go through, here's the repair process and now carry on with your life. Um, what sort of um, what sort of advice or help would you give to somebody who's been through that, who's been through sexual abuse and is carrying the symptoms of PTSD? I think firstly it's important to acknowledge that it's not your fault. A lot of times when you have struggled, people ask you all of these questions of what do you, what were you wearing? What did you say? Did you say no? And the truth of it is, is it's not a black or white matter. I know from personal experience, you can say no 50 times and a person might keep asking. And the one time you don't say anything at all, that's the time it happens. And that's all people are going to remember is, well, you didn't say anything that time. What happened to the other 50 times I said no? Or what happens to the power imbalances of if you're someone young who is an adolescent or a child and someone older is taking advantage of you when you don't know any better and they instill all of this in you. And I think it's important to recognize that this is something that is on all of us. This is a community effort. If we say that we are a religion and practice based on community, based on supporting each other, then that's what we have to put into practice is make a safe place for the people to be able to come forward and to not victim blame and to support each other and help these people get past it. It is an incredibly traumatic experience that has lingering effects that affects people's relationships moving forward, their ability to communicate with partners that they might have in life. And it affects every single thing they do. And I think you're right, there isn't enough support in place and I'm thankful that there are places like Core Voices and there's a bunch of other organizations that are making these conversations more accessible and talking about it. But until everyone's on board, this is going to remain an issue. And it's also giving too much power to those people who are the ones who committed the crime. You have to realize that if you did this and you took advantage of someone like that, you're the bad person. You're the one who's done something wrong. And it should never be on the victim or the person who experienced it or the survivor to fix that for you. It, that's something that you should be working towards. Absolutely. And how can we show up better? How can we do more? If, if I have a friend or if I know somebody who's struggling with their mental health, how can I show up for them? What can I do? 
honestly, I think it's as simple as having a conversation and letting them know that you're there for them. Um, I know it's hard because sometimes people might not be receptive right away, but even if you have to tell them once, twice, 50 times in one time, they take you up on it. That's the one time they needed it. And you're, they know they can come to you. I know for me, I've always said that I'm open that anyone wants to come and ask a question or ask for help. I will do everything in my power to do the best I can to help someone. I don't have all the answers. I am not an encyclopedia, but I Google things really quickly and really well. And I'm more than willing to have those conversations. And I think that's something I've changed in my life as well is recognizing that vulnerability is actually strength. And that if someone takes advantage of you being vulnerable and you being honest, that's a reflection of them and not you. And so I conduct myself in that way is I am very vulnerable. I put myself out there a lot and that vulnerability opens a lot of people up to me and people feel comfortable sharing with me. And I kind of ask that question back of I'm willing to help anyone who's there. And so the people I love, the people I'm surrounded by, I'm constantly asking them, are you okay? What's going on? How are you? Tell me what's up. And they know that like I have friends who I went to university with a couple guys actually that I went to school with that they had seen me open up and we probably didn't talk for three or four years. And one day they just asked me, they were struggling with anxiety and they were like, I don't know what to do. And we just sat and we had a conversation Hmm. and it was three, four years of not talking, but that one conversation I'm sure helped make a difference. And I've done the same of there's people out there who I haven't talked to in a really long time, but when they reach out, maybe that's the one moment I was ready to speak. I have friends who check on me every day, but sometimes it's easier for me to talk to a stranger because I've, I feel like there's no judgment there or even if like, who are they going to tell what, what difference is going to make. And so honestly, even if that's talking to a stranger, one thing I've found recently has been super helpful is helplines and text lines. So I know they're pretty prominent in Canada, the US and the UK, but those helplines and those text lines are a way for you to speak to someone who doesn't know you, it's anonymous, and you can get a lot off your chest and they can help find other resources for you. So I think it's getting creative with the ways that you're seeking help and the way you're providing help for others. And I think it's also just being a good listener goes a really long way. Mm-hmm. A lot of the time when someone's struggling, we, because we're just good people, we so badly want to give them solutions and help them do something about it. But sometimes at the end of the day, all people need is just someone to listen to them and for them to feel like they're understood and that they matter and that their voice matters. So listening goes such a long way. And then you can ask them at the end, is there anything I can do? Is there any way I can help? And you guys can kind of work together too mm-hmm. after that. Yes, that's awesome. And I think just some resources for anybody who is looking. In the UK, we have the Sick Helpline. Um, there's been a new one set up by Sick Your Mind, as in S I K H, Sick Your Mind. Um, in the US, there's the Sick Family Center. And I think in Canada, you've got Sorch, you've got PCHS, mm-hmm. uh, Ladlia. Yeah. In all Canada, US, um, and the UK, there's also Crisis Text Line, and they're a anonymous text line. Um, I, I'm not sure what the number is, but I know it's 741741 741 in both Canada, US, the UK number you can look up. But 
you can text them and have an anonymous conversation with a trained volunteer and they're available 24 seven. That is wonderful. Thank you for sharing those resources as well. And it's important, I think, for all of us to recognize what we need and not be afraid to seek help. So if you're tuning in, if you're catching this episode and you feel like you need to reach out, please reach out, get the support that you need because you deserve everything. You deserve the best. So know your own worth. And I think that Everything that you've shared today, Jesse, is, is beautiful. And I love the work that you're doing. I love that you're out there helping more people to connect with mental well-being because it's so, so important. It's so important. Before we wrap up, would you like to leave our community, our core voice of the community with a message? Yeah, I think for me, it's at, at the end of the day, recognize that you are strong, you are powerful. And a lot of the times I think we discredit ourselves and think we can't do it. But if you think about it, everything you thought you couldn't do up until this day, you've done, you came over obstacles, you've found yourself to this spot and you can do much more further. So be okay with reaching out for help. There is no shame in it. There's no shame with struggling. Every single person isn't okay sometimes. And some of the best things come out of those struggles. And it's really learning how, do we navigate this space and someone has to be the one to break the cycle and why not be you? I love that. We need to become the change that we're waiting for. Exactly. Yes. I love that so much. That's a quote from um, See No Stranger by Valerie Gore, a book that she wrote recently. So if you guys haven't read it, go out and get that book. It's an amazing book. Um, Jesse, you have been fantastic. It's been such a joy to have you on the show. I still had a ton more questions, so I'm going to have to ask you to come back so that we can go through all of them. But I love that we covered so many important topics today. I really appreciate your time and your wisdom to be here with us. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Jesse. And I hope that you will come back and join us again in our beautiful little Core Voices community. Definitely will. Thank you so much, everyone. Thank you. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in to Core Voice.